Greetings and salutations in the name of our Lord. I hope you're having a fabuloso day. Uh, welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page, where I get to go through the scripture and you get to see me think with my mouth open. Here's my coffee. I'm ready to go. Today's devotional is really a hard one, difficult one, because of the subject material. Um, I get the feeling that Paul is just kind of gobsmacked over the reports that he's getting. Um, here's a church that he has established. And he's already established a church in Thessalonica, right? He's established churches over in Asia Minor. Uh, he's in Ephesus right at this moment establishing the church and all the churches in that area. Um, And by all accounts, Paul has had good success everywhere he's been. But Corinth, he gets a report from them and oh my word, there are so many deep, deep issues with them. And today he's going to take on one that I find incredibly difficult just even to speak about. But it's in Paul's letter, so we're going to go out and get after it. Let's get started. Remember when I told you at the beginning that Paul was going to address 10 issues in in his letter to the Corinthians. The first one was how Christians were dividing over church leaders. And he was talking about how church divisions are so awful and evil and absolutely... uh, so destructive to a church body, favoring one person over another, whether it's a leadership or somebody in your, even in your congregation that might be important in society, dividing by class, dividing by status, dividing by gifts of the spirit. I mean, this whole church is characterized by division. And uh, today... We're going to talk about how they've got not division so much, though that plays a part in today's Bible study devotional. This is about the wrongful application of inclusion, including someone. Oh, all right. Without even going on any further. Again, like yesterday, I'm going to read, skip over the red parts that you see here, and I'm going to read the black ink, the scripture, the past itself. Then I'm going to go back and we'll talk about that and pick up the thoughts that I've written in red. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has done this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep that festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity 
and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who, who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. All right. Difficult topic. So let me explain what's going on here. Apparently, they had someone in the body there at Corinth who was having an illicit relationship with his stepmother. And we know that because it says here, uh, Paul says a man is sleeping with his father's wife. He would have said mother if it had been the boy's flesh and blood mother. But apparently even this is his father's wife, so it would be a stepmom. And he's having an illicit relationship with a stepmother. This is a relationship that is forbidden by Jewish law. And even in Roman society, Cicero says here, states that incest was practically unheard of in Roman society. So this was a situation that even the secular community would look down on and disapprove of. And Paul is stunned. He says, and you're proud? You're proud? Now, there's two possible reasons for being proud of something like this. And it comes from some uh, twisted thinking, twisted logic, if you will. Perhaps they were proud despite the man's behavior, and so were displaying their greater tolerance of a sin that, that even society couldn't deal with. In other words, they're using this as, look how tolerant we are. Look, we're tolerant of this man's behavior. Even the world doesn't do that. Now, that's backwards thinking. But it's like, we're extending grace to him when even the world around us won't do that. We're demonstrating Christ to him. Ugh, no, 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 no. The other option is they were proud because of the man's behavior, in which case they were condoning it on the basis of their liberty in Christ, a distortion of grace. So maybe they were allowing it in order to show off their tolerance or they were proud of the man's behavior and condoning it because, well, you know, we have liberty in Christ. How we live is up to us. Paul quote, you know, it brings to mind that what Paul said in Romans, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who died to sin. How can we live it in any how can we live in it any longer? Allowing this person who's having this illicit relationship with his stepmother to remain in the body is not extending grace. Which, by the way, grace means unmerited favor. When you say I'm extending grace to someone, you're extending favor to them. Paul goes, you know, I'm I'm with you in spirit. I want you, when you're assembled, to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. 
Clearly, the intention is that this man must be excluded from the fellowship with the goal of putting to death that part of his sinful nature so that on the day of judgment he'll be saved. When you put somebody outside of the body, in other words, that's excommunication, what you are saying is you are acting like an unbeliever. Your sin is so egregious that you are acting and looking like an unbeliever. Therefore, you cannot be part of the body of believers until this changes. It's, uh, there's a, this example that comes to mind. Uh, I might be stretching here, but in the story of Moses and the Pharaoh, it reaches a point where, where the Pharaoh stands up to Moses' miracles about halfway through. Then all of a sudden he's about to buckle and it says, the Lord strengthened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, which literally means he, he gave the Pharaoh strength to stand up against Moses. Now, what does that mean? God wasn't causing the Pharaoh to sin. The Pharaoh had already demonstrated his desire in the matter. He was opposing God. And God says, all right, you want to oppose me? I'm going to give you the strength to do it. Well, Pharaoh showed his heart and his hand by what he did. Well, these, this person here with his stepmother is showing a really disturbing picture. And it's not a picture that reflects Christ. It's not a picture that reflects Christ's values. He is displaying himself as an unbeliever. And Paul is saying, treat him like one. Put him outside the body. That his flesh might be destroyed. And the goal, is, believe it or not, is to repatriate him into the body. But put him outside the body. Now, what will that do, really? Just tell him, hey, you can't come here anymore? Now, there's a spiritual element here. The, the body of Christ and the whole ministry of the Holy Spirit um, protects us from many things. We don't know. There's an unseen realm around us that we just do not grasp many times. There are, there are angels and demonic beings. There's, there's a war going on. And there are so many things that are happening in the unseen realm that we just don't understand. And sometimes we get a glimpse of it. But the body of Christ brings with it a measure of protection. When we gather together, when we fellowship with each other, when we pray for each other, we're at war. And there's a protection that the body of Christ extends to its uh, adherence. And when we tell somebody to, we put somebody outside the body of Christ, we're removing them from the protect, the spiritual protection that that church body gives, that the church of Jesus Christ gives. And we, and people can associate with, with Christians and be blessed by the workings of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean they're saved, but there are blessings to be had to be to be associated with the body of Christ. And there are people within the body of Christ or within the church gathered, excuse me, that might not be believers but are still benefiting from benefits of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we put somebody outside the body, 
excommunicate them. We're taking them and putting them outside that protective umbrella, if you will. And Paul says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so his spirit might be saved. If this person is truly a believer, he needs to suffer the fullest consequences of this sin. There are some sins that are just so egregious that sometimes this is the only solution. Counseling won't help. Uh, You can't condone it. You can't allow it. You have to put the person outside so that the world can deal with it. And if they're truly a believer, they'll come back. Your boasting is not good. Hmm. One of the characteristics of the church in Corinth was their boasting about status and position. I'm a Peter. I'm Apollos. I'm a Paul. Um, That was a big deal to them. Status and position meant a great deal to them. And, you know, Paul had told them in, in the third chapter, stop boasting about human leaders. They put way too much emphasis on position, social status, uh, your ability to speak. Um, there, there were patrons upon whom other people depended, rich, wealthy people who supported people around them. And, and I'm not, maybe that played into this. Maybe this, this guy that was uh, having this illicit relationship, maybe he was really, really important person in that city. Maybe they were allowing him to continue because they didn't want to go against the mojo this guy had. Maybe he had political pull. Maybe he had, you know, he had status. Maybe he was supporting a lot of people and they didn't want to take the chance of losing that support. I don't know. But judging on the character of the church to this point, I could see that as a very real possibility. Paul says here, I wrote you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. All right. Apparently he'd written a letter that we don't have. And he says, I'm not talking about the people of this world because we'd have to leave this world because the world is full of these kind of people. But I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Don't even eat with such people. So he's saying, you know, it's the world is full of people like that. You're going to have to be rubbing shoulders with them out in the marketplace. But these kind of people should not be found within the local church. We shouldn't have anybody in our church who's sexually immoral or greedy. Oh, what business is of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Again, by removing a person from the body of Christ, from the church, expelling them, symbolically, you're putting them out into the realm of God's judgment of sin. There's there's lots of things that are implied with excommunication. Now, my question going into this, and we've partially answered it, how could the Corinthian church tolerate a sin that even their own culture repudiated? couple possibilities here. If the person involved was a member of high standing, that could be an answer. Perhaps the Corinthians ignored the incest and boasted that a man with such high social status was a member of their church. Perhaps the church was honored 
that a person with such a prominent status would be part of their congregation, and they were unwilling to confront him about this incest. So the church did what their culture occasionally did for socially prominent people. They turned a blind eye to that person's sin, rather than risk losing his favor and becoming an enemy of a powerful man. Another thought, what if some or many owed him because he was their patron? Lots of reasons. We can manufacture lots of reasons to tolerate sin. I have seen it uh, in churches I've been part of in the past where prominent members of the community were given preferred seating in church. I've seen it. They get the best seats. And they sit to the front. People can see them come in. People can see how wealthy they are, how pious they are. It's all about the show to them. I was part of a church once where a pastor came in. They'd, they'd had The old pastor had passed away, and they were looking for a new pastor. And the deacon board, and this is a deacon-run church uh, where the deacons ran everything, including the pastor. And the deacons brought in a man that had been a former business owner. He had business acumen. And they thought, in their wisdom... <laughs> that it would be good to have a man who would run a business to come in and run the church. And what they didn't know about this man was that he was a real man of God. And he was pursuing God with all his heart, soul, and mind. And yes, he was a former businessman. But he knew that you don't run your church according to the world's system. And they voted him in as pastor. And these deacons were comprised of the individuals in the church primary, that gave most of the money to the church. They were the rich individuals that gave large chunks of money to the church. And he stood up after being elected as pastor and he said, I've been reading through the bylaws of this church and what I'm about to do, I've been told I can do. So he said, uh, my first order of business is to fire all the deacons on the deacon board. And the church was stunned. And one of the deacons stood up and said, friend, if we walk out that door, our money goes with us. Can you believe it? His response was a little bit on the crude side, but it was appropriate, I believe. He said, don't let the door hit you on the way out. And when you're gone, we'll have church. And he sat down. That's all he said. Well, sure enough, they got up and they marched out and it took about half the church with them. The church was reduced in size by 50% that night. But the church recovered and went on to be a very good church, a little church, country church in Georgia. So that was a church that had been run by the world system and prominent people were running the show. And up until the pastor came, that pastor came, people were afraid to buck the system because these people were prominent and powerful people. Maybe that's what was going on here. Maybe the Corinthian church was so enamored with position and power and money that they just did not want to go up against a guy like this. Mm. Well, how could the Corinthian church tolerate a sin that even their own culture repudiated? Well, I just told you the solution, put them out of the fellowship of the church if they do not repent and treat them as an unbeliever because indeed they're acting as an unbeliever. Paul accused them of that in their talk about division earlier on in the first couple chapters. He said, you're acting like unbelievers here. You're acting like the world acts. So put them out of the fellowship of the church and treat them as an unbeliever because indeed that is what they are acting as. No communion, etc. Repentance, which is turning from sin, it's not saying I'm sorry. 
It's turning from sin, an active thing that you do to demonstrate your heart. When you repent, you turn from your sin. So repentance is a part of a true Christian's DNA. And if there's no repentance in a case such as this, this is a window into the heart of that person and they are in effect informing you they might not be a believer after all. And Paul says simply, treat them as such. You know, I've told you before that Old Presbyterian told me there's the church visible and then the church invisible. The church visible is everybody who shows up. And the church invisible are the true believers hidden in the midst of all of that. And you're always going to have people in our local churches that are there for reasons other than devoutly Christian reasons. It's a good place to network. Uh, it's a good, play, a good place to for to make appearances. You know, there's lots of reasons. And it's possible that this person was one of those kind of people. He had reasons other than godly reasons for being part of the local church. So he says, when somebody doesn't repent, they're showing you their character. Treat them as such. Final thought. And I'll close with this. Unrepentant sexual immorality is not the only sin that deserves church discipline. Paul includes a sampling of others. The greedy and swindlers are so covetous that they defraud others. Idolaters worship images or anything other than the one true God. Slanderers abuse others with their words. And drunkards regularly get drunk and carouse. This is the thought. This is huge. If a sin so characterizes a professing believer's life that they refuse to repent of that sin and others can label them by that sin, then the church must remove that person from among them. See, we're all going to sin. Every Christian sins. We, we, till the day God takes us home, we're going to sin. We're going to say things we shouldn't, do things we shouldn't. But that's not what this is talking about. This sentence, if a sin so characterizes a professing believer's life that others can label them by that sin. In other words, they look at you and say, they don't think Christian. They think drunkard. They don't look at you and say Christian. They say liar, swindler. When others can label you by that sin and not by the name of Christ, that's the issue. And the answer is the church must remove that person from among them. So the church shouldn't get in the business just kicking people out if they see them having a beer or kicking people out if uh, they catch them lying about something. But if a person does nothing but lie and are known as a liar because that's their lifestyle, if a person is known as a drunkard because all they do is drink, that's a different thing. And Paul is telling these people, this, this church that this is how they need to deal with this man who has this wrong relationship with his stepmother. You need to remove that person. Whew. This is a hard chapter to do. It's uncomfortable, but it reminds me of the pervasive nature of sin. I have a f several friends of mine who are recovering addicts, and they will all tell you the same thing. In the beginning, 
of the, using the drug of choice. It was recreational, something that just made them feel good. But it reaches the point where the brain chemistry is affected to the point where all of a sudden they can not not use that drug. The person I'm thinking of was a heroin addict. In the beginning, it was the buzz. And this person was not known as a heroin user. But this person got to the point where all of a sudden when they become an addict, they have to have it. And their label was heroin addict. Their life was consumed by that thing. And sin is like that. And that's why sin is so dangerous. That it can get to the point where you are characterized by and labeled by that sin. When that happens, you're in the position this fella is in this church. Tough stuff. All right, well, that's it for today. Uh, We'll have wrap-up Saturday tomorrow, and uh, then we'll get back at chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, on Monday. This is Mr. G. Here's my coffee. And I am out of here.